0: Oh, hello. Welcome to Trained Body and Mind, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beyer. Each episode, I connect with the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, what we like to call the five facets of fitness. Today, I'm sitting down with a trailblazing psychologist who taught the world and the World Health Organization what job
1: burnout really means. Most of the stuff that's out there is usually about how to help the person. That's coping. Like, the job is what it is. You have to step up to the plate. And if it's more work, we're doing more with less, you're going to have to step up even more. What I'm looking at is, so why is this happening? What is happening in the job? The pandemic came along and threw in a new wrench of why workplaces are unhealthy. You can't be near people. But what it did do is challenge that assumption that the job always just is what it is. You can't change it. You can't fix it. You're just going to have to step up. No, the job can be done differently. We just did it differently in many, many ways. That's groundbreaking research psychologist Dr.
0: Christina Maslach on why the blame for burnout should never just fall on the individual. It takes a village to fuel burnout, and it takes one to stop it. Dr. Maslach is the only person I've ever met with a psychological index named after her. That's like getting a star on the psychologist's walk of fame, which is not actually a thing, but still. Her work on burnout, defining it, measuring it, breaking it down into its component parts, has always been relevant. But over the last few decades, it's become very relevant, as our work days have started to include work nights. And then last year, when the wheels seemed to come off the world, that work went from very relevant to urgent especially for workers at the front line. All that said, Dr. Maslach wants us to know that we can be exhausted, we can be stressed, we can be angry at our bosses and short-tempered with our families, but that doesn't always mean we're burned out. Most of us, it turns out, don't even have a clear idea of what burnout really is. That's where Dr. Maslach comes in. I specifically invited her here to smash a few misconceptions. Today, we'll talk about the need to shift a little responsibility from the burnees to the burners. We'll discuss a few tools to help us cope, and how to know when just coping isn't going to cut it. And we'll dig deep into the six paths to a positive workplace that we all need to make sure are clear for travel. I feel like I'm sitting down with burnout royalty. You are <laughs> you are considered a pioneer of burnout research, for real. Your work is the basis for the World Health Organization's decision to include burnout as an occupational phenomenon, and this might come as a surprise to some listening, but burnout is not classified as a medical condition. So I would love for you to define burnout
1: for us because I really want to make sure that we get this right. We're talking about job burnout, and I say that because people use burnout to mean all kinds of things. We're talking about a syndrome. It has three different components. It has exhaustion, the stress response, but it also has This negative cynicism, take this job and shove it kind of attitude, disengage from the work, you're not liking the job and the place where you are. And a third one is beginning to feel not just negative about the job, but negative about yourself. Why am I Mm -hmm. here? Maybe I made a mistake. I'm not proud of what I'm doing, etc. So that triumvirate, that trifecta of the exhaustion of stress, a negative response to the job, and a negative evaluation of oneself together is the burnout experience And as World Health has pointed out, it is in response to chronic job stressors that have not been successfully managed. Not successfully managed by anyone, by the person, the company, the organization, the team, anybody can be part of that. And that is part of just our human condition, that we respond to stressors. So it's not considered a special disease. It's part of who we are as human beings. But in this case, it has incredible negative effects, not only on the individual, but on the organization, the work they do, the people they come in touch with and cross paths with, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, you know, out in the world and so forth. So that, I think, is why we are concerned about understanding more why that kind of experience is happening more and more often to more people.
0: Can you tell me what some of those negative
1: effects might be? Well, burnout is like when you're feeling stressed by anything <laughs> you know, in mm-hmm. life, when your body gets ready for challenge, often called fight or flight, you're getting ready to run away or getting ready to take it on. And what that means is your body starts setting up, forget digestion. We need to get ready for energy. You're going to be focusing more on stuff, not paying attention to other things. Your heart starts pumping more. It's really getting you ready like in an athlete when the, you know the gun goes off. You're ready to absolutely move out as fast Mm -hmm. as you can. The problem with stress, however, like most things in life, everything is a double-edged sword. It's positive, but the negative effect is if you're stressed all the time, it's going to wear your body down. Often what we're seeing is that people are being forced by the chronic job stressors. To be Mm -hmm. on all the time. And the body is really not set up to be that way. So how people behave, how they do their job, how they treat other people, how they take care of themselves, that begins to fall apart. And it can have multiple effects on yourself, but on lots of other people.
0: I was going to say your relationships too, right? Like you bring it home with you. You do. You do. I don't know if you can generalize this, but how long does it take for burnout to take effect? How long do you have to be... In a job or experiencing stress to exhaustion to typically hit that trifecta that you mentioned earlier?
1: There's no good answer to that, although it's a good question because there's huge individual differences in how mm-hmm. well people cope. There's no one way that burnout happens. And so it tends not to be something that happens immediately. It's not an occasional crisis, an emergency, uh, all hands on deck, we have to do, you know, everybody has that sometimes. People talk about it as the pebbles in their shoe. Just have that every day dealing with this crazy stuff, this awful stuff. How do you keep going? And some people will try and figure out ways to get around it or do other things or quit their job or, you know, whatever, and others will slog on and some people will cope better, some will not. So there's no good single answer, but it usually takes some time. People talk about it as an erosion, an erosion of not only their physical strength and vitality, but an erosion of their soul.
0: Is it hard for people to tell the difference if the apathy that they're feeling toward their work is because they're not challenged by or engaged by their work Mm. or that it is burnout? Is there a way to tell the
1: difference between the two? It's an overload, not an underload phenomenon. It is too much. And it's the mismatches, the misfits, the imbalances between the person and the job that are really critical here. People use the term really to refer to Having just lost all my resources, the tank is empty. I can't Mm -hmm. do it anymore. And that's the real exhaustion stress response. Now, these days that workload is getting higher and higher and the resources to match it are way, way, way out of balance. Mm -hmm. And if you're just exhausted, but you still love the job where you're working, you still think well of yourself and say, yeah, but I managed to make it and I do well, You're not Mm -hmm. burned out. You're what Mm -hmm. we call overextended.
0: I think that part of the confusion surrounding burnout is that it's become a bit of a buzzword lately. I've heard people talk about it, you know, they're burnt out in their family life with their workout routine, like, I'm so burnt out on running right now, I can't do it anymore, even with social media. So it makes it seem like there are all kinds of levels and types of burnout. Why do you think that it's important that we make the distinction between exhaustion and stress and burnout
1: clear? If you're using the term burnout, usually people are meaning there's something that has gone wrong in my mm-hmm. life in between what I'm doing and what I am supposed to be doing. And people resonate to the imagery, you know, of burnout. And so it's like, oh, my God, I'm so burned out, like you were saying on jogging or whatever. I'm burned out. I haven't had a good idea in a whole week, you know, kind (laughs) of thing. Or I am just so burned out on that show. I don't want to watch it anymore. So it's used as a catchphrase. The important thing is really focusing not on the response so much as what is causing it. So what I think is happening now is often people are using it as a way of saying something's wrong, not working, but why? And the focus has been on, wow, what's wrong with you? Why can't you keep up? So there's a stigma attached to that, Mm -hmm. I think, as well. But when you focus just on what's wrong with the person, the workers, you're forgetting entirely about why are they feeling that way? What's going on at work? Now, other people say, gee, there's other things like parental burnout, and there's midlife crisis burnout, and there's- I had some parental burnout last night. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And they're then saying with World Health, how dare you say it's just you know about the job? World Health makes a statement when they've got a huge amount of evidence, and so they've had research evidence for the past four or five decades Mm. that they've evaluated and said, you know, there is something legitimate going on here in the workplace. There's no big evidence of research on parent burnout yet. Maybe there will be. Yeah. But they're not going to go out and make a statement about parent burnout when they've had no evidentiary base globally to say, is this just a catchphrase? Is this really something serious, et cetera? So I think it's not that they are trying to limit burnout to that, but carefully saying, we're talking about job burnout. And for that, here's how it's defined, and this is what it's about.
0: Yeah. I would imagine with the current environment that there's a lot of research happening right now in these other areas of burnout that we'll hear more from in a number of years once they have that replication and that support there. I do wonder if the way that we're talking about burnout right now maybe listeners are thinking that it's something that only happens to nine to five employees or someone really high up the chain. So I'd love to know who mm. can out. affect? Have you seen this in young people, junior level employees, people working unconventional jobs? Yeah, it's
1: much more about the job. So mm. like, are women more likely to burn out than men? You know, kind of, let's just take healthcare for a minute. It was pretty much always men were doctors, women were mm-hmm. nurses. So if you say, is there a difference between men and women? Well, is there something about you know being a particular sex? Or is it something about difference between doctors and nurses? They have different jobs, they have different level of control. So when those are confounded, you can't really take them apart. And so if women go into certain specializations more than others, that'll be maybe a difference. If women are more likely to be responsible for care of children, and so that will have, we were seeing in pandemic, That was happening a lot, you know, and they were more under the gun in terms of trying to balance work, family, all of that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. there's no simple answer. It's a signal like the canary going down into the coal mine. And if the bird is not doing well and having trouble breathing, it's not about that the bird is not strong enough, resilient enough, can take anything You've got some toxic conditions down there, and it's a signal, yeah. it's a sign. Better look at what is causing the problem here. So, burnout is saying less about individual people than it is about what's going on in the environment. You know, do we have a healthy workplace where people thrive mm-hmm. rather than get beaten down? And that's really the big challenge is to figure out how do we look at what are those pebbles in the ship? What are the sources? What are the problems that are making this happen? And can we make changes in those as well as trying to help people cope more effectively?
0: I'm loving how you're really setting the record straight here, how you're providing a lot of clarity around what we know. Mm -hmm. Are there any other common misconceptions that you would love to clear up? Any (laughs) myths you would love to bust? Like, this is your
1: platform. Let's go. (laughs) Let's go. Well, as I said before, part of the problem is that the evocative imagery and the way it connects to people's feelings means that it can get overused. That's also led some people to say, oh, well, it's just pop psychology. It's not real. Mm-hmm. I think it is a real phenomenon. And even though the term is getting used a lot now, there is still a stigma. It's viewed as a mental illness. Well, the psychiatrist and everybody who are in charge of putting a classification on mental illnesses have said no. No. It's part of a human condition. It's not a specific disease. And yet, people are always assuming it must be. If somebody is feeling it, then what's wrong with them? They're less than 100%. They're weak. And there is no clinical evidence that it's, quote, a disease. Can it Mm -hmm. lead to health problems down the road? Absolutely. Stress does that all the time. Can it lead to anxiety and depression? Sure, it could. But that doesn't mean it's a disease. And so the push to have a diagnosis, have a test that tells you like a thermometer whether or not you have a fever, there isn't such a test. Now, people keep using the test that I developed, but that was for research purposes. It's discovery. It's answering Mm -hmm. questions. But it's not ever, ever, ever meant and never validated as something that is telling you personally on an individual level you have this mental illness.
0: Okay. So I do want to go down this rabbit hole with you a little bit. And I promise to everybody listening that we will spend some time talking about what we can all do about burnout. But you did mention that you have this psychological assessment tool in your name. It's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. Now I am currently getting a master's in psychology and I just finished a class on research methods. And it went over measurement validity, and reliability. I realize I'm totally nerding out here, but bear with me because I do have a point. (laughs) But my understanding is that essentially for a measurement tool like yours to be considered valid, which means that it measures what it sets out to measure, and reliable, which means that it consistently yields the same or nearly the same results Mm -hmm. over repeated administrations, it has to be tested for about 10 years. You can't just come up with a psychometrically sound survey in the short term. And I believe you released yours in 1981, and so it's withstood all of the testing, and today it's one of a small handful of burnout scales being used to help understand the phenomenon. I want to say all of this because I really want to emphasize your experience with and your impact on the subject, Mm -hmm. and I just think it's really badass to have something so legit with your name (laughs) on it, so that's very cool. (laughs) But why did you create that scale, and how is it being used today?
1: My whole entry into studying burnout didn't start with any knowledge of burnout. I had never even heard the term. I had just finished my PhD in psychology at Stanford and was starting my job at Berkeley and was interested in issues of emotion, the kind Mm -hmm. of feelings people have, and how do they manage that? Sometimes you may be scared about what you're going to have to do, but you have to be calm because you don't want anybody else to be nervous, those kind of things. So that was my interest. I was trained as a laboratory experimentalist. There wasn't a lab at Berkeley when I first got there. So I was thinking, well, I'll go out and let me talk to people who experience these kind of strong feelings when you're in a crisis or an emergency or dealing with something that's very sensitive. So I just started going out doing interviews with people largely in healthcare, social service, people oriented. You're working with clients, with patients, with students. They'd often say, could we talk about some other things too? And then they would start telling other experiences that they were having at work that I hadn't asked directly about, but that they were concerned about. And after a while, I began noticing there was a kind of a rhythm. It didn't matter if I was talking to a psychiatric nurse or somebody in the ER or a psychiatric social worker or a teacher or something like that. And then second by chance experience, I was at a dinner for new faculty, new staff on the Berkeley campus. And the person on one side was a lawyer, and uh, she asked, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing these interviews. She said, tell me about it. And I described a little, and she said, oh, my God, I don't know what you call it, but in poverty law, where I used to work, we called it burnout. Interesting. Yeah. And so I had a great interview with her later on, actually. It was Uh really, really amazing. But then what I would do at the end of all of the interviews, I would be asking people, do you talk about this? Do you share these kind of things with other people? Usually not because of the stigma. But I said, is there a name for it? I mean, and I was searching all kind of research literature to find out. And then I started adding, well, what about burnout? Yes, that's it. That's it. You know, it's not a theory. It's not a big construct that came down. It, It was really bottom up from the people themselves saying this expresses what I'm going through. Even when I was going back and doing experimental research, I kept this thing going because I just said, there's something important here. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I need to figure this out. And one of my senior professor colleagues, Harrison Goff, is kind of the leader of psychological testing. Okay. And he said, you know what? You're now going to have to develop a measure that will begin to capture in a standardized way what all of these individual interviews are doing. We went through years and years in the 70s into the early 80s to interview and get data of different kinds from people working in these jobs. But you then talk to their spouse. You talk to their clients and patients. You get a 360 view of, does this align to verify all of that? And out of that, we developed this measure, which didn't give, you know, yes, no, burnout, not burnout. It actually Mm -hmm. identified there's at least these three interrelated components and, It wouldn't get published first. People were saying, ah, burnout, come on. You know, only a few crazy people.
0: That's fascinating. Are you like, look at me now? Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know.
1: It's kind of like, who would have thought, right? Yeah. And my first publication actually wasn't even in an academic journal. I finally published in a popular magazine. You know, I ran into a freelance writer and she said, put it there where it goes back to the people you've been talking about. So I did. And that was like a bombshell article. I mean, this was in the days of snail mail before email, but these huge bags full of letters, phone calls, people coming by my office saying, oh my God, I read that article. I used to think I was the only one, but let me tell you my story. And then it just kept going. So a different kind of birth than other kinds of of work.
0: That's so interesting. And how cool it it must be to have been there at the very beginning. Are there really new things to learn after all this time about burnout? Like how much (laughs) are you discovering
1: now? We're discovering more things and as we get more sophisticated tools and doing the research. So for example, we're finding that the burnout measure actually can generate at least five major different work experience profiles. So that means that we can look at more of these kinds of occupational experiences and try and figure out not just what is causing them, but for me right now in this phase of my career i'm most interested in how do we translate what we've been learning into actual action how do we prevent burnout how do we make mm-hmm. it less of a problem most of the stuff that's out there is usually about how to help the person that's coping like the job is what it is you have to step up to the plate. And if it's more work, we're doing more with less, you're going to have to step up even more and Mm -hmm. you're going to have to take care of yourself and you're going to have to da-da-da-da-da-da. What I'm looking at is, so why is this happening? What is happening in the job? The pandemic came along and threw in a new wrench of why workplaces are unhealthy. You can't be near people. You can't be indoors, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what it did do is sort of challenge that assumption that the job always just is what it is. You can't change it. You can't fix it. You're just going to have to step up. No, the job can be done differently. We Mm. just did it differently in many, many ways. Some were good. Some were not so good. But it could be different. And I think what this is leading a lot of people to sort of think of, I could find a better way to do the kind of stuff that I think is important or that I love Mm -hmm. or that I really hope to be good at. I often would hear in some of these burnout interviews that it would be one thing to take time off and, you know, da-da-da-da. They didn't want to go back to the original job they came from. It was Mm -hmm. like, please put me in a different place. I love the work I'm doing. Can't stand that socially toxic office that I'm in. You know, can I do this at home without Mm -hmm. them? You know, or can I switch to a hospital which, you know, values patients more than just money so that I'm feeling better about what I'm doing? For me... When we focus on those mismatches, and they're in six different areas that we found in the research. So there's six different paths. One or more of them are all helpful in getting people to a better place in terms of that match, that balance Mm. between the job and the person. So that's the big message that I want to get out and sort of figure out how best to talk about it. I know it generically. But it Mm -hmm. all has to be customized to a school teacher as opposed to a tech worker, as opposed to, you know, it's going to be different. It's got to be customized, even if the generic is the same.
0: When we come back from the break, Dr. Maslach breaks down the six aspects of a positive work experience, gets real about whether time off really gives us time back, and tells us how she herself avoids burning out on burnout. You're about to release another book on burnout. Is this what is in that book? Can you give yes. us a sneak peek? A Can sneak you talk peek. about these six paths? <laughs> oh, we'll still all go out and buy it and read it, I'm sure, but, <laughs> but give us yeah. a little teaser.
1: Yeah, it is a book about really focusing on these mismatches between people and work, the job. So I'm going to list the six, not in any order of importance, but really probably let me list them in the order that people already know about them or think about them. First one is workload. Everybody thinks about that. Too much to do, don't have enough resources to do it. Well, how do you get back to a more sustainable kind of workload? You work hard some days, but you got some time for recovery. How do you make it that we can keep going as opposed to just getting, ah, I can't handle it anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? The second area we've also known about for a while, and that is control. How much individual choice, discretion, control do you have over how you do your work so that you can, you know, innovate, modify when people are locked in, have no choice, just have to do what they're told to do and don't have any say about, you know, we could do it this way, which would be actually helpful. Third area has to do with what we call reward. Reward is positive feedback for the job you do and when you do it well. And it'll include things like pay, where people are working hard and really not getting a decent wage in benefits, you know, other kind of things like access to healthcare, or childcare, or you know, all those kind of things. But it turns out in a lot of the research, one of the things that pops up as really important is what I'll call social reward, recognition from other people, your colleagues, your boss, mm-hmm. your clients, your patients. Thank you. I'm so glad you handled that. Or, oh, my God, we almost had a disaster there with that client. That was really cool. You know, if people say the best day that they have in their work is the absence of anything bad happening, that's as good as it can get. Mm. That's not a good, positive environment. The fourth area, and we're seeing a real uptick in this in recent years, again, even before pandemic, this is about the workplace community. So when I say community, I don't mean the larger city or something. Who are the other people that you work with, you work for, you supervise, the people whose paths you cross on a regular basis? Is there trust, support? You know, we'll figure out how we solve problems. We may have different points of view. We reinforce. We pat on the back, all that kind of stuff. Or are you working in what people are calling socially toxic workplaces where there is Lack of trust. People are going to throw you under the bus if they have Mm -hmm. any inkling that you're less than 100% and getting stuck on a problem. You can't talk to anybody. You don't have a mentor. There's bullying. There is sarcasm and really incivility where people are putting you down. And if you're working in that kind of a social environment, we see real problems with burnout. Fifth area has to do with what we call fairness That is, whatever the policies, the practices, the rules, you know, in terms of how we do what we do, are they fairly applied to everybody who qualifies? When it's unfair, it means that the system is rigged and the wrong people are getting rewarded. This is where glass ceilings live. This is where discrimination lives. And the cynicism and, you know, that disengagement can go sky high when there's real problems with fairness. And then the last one, but sometimes this is the most important one for some people, is values or meaning of work. There's a sense of purpose that even if there's bad days, good days, there's a sense in which, you know, I can contribute. But if I'm in an environment where there is a real value conflict, it's not about really treating the patients. It's by bringing in more patients so the hospital makes more money. People talk about this is the soul erosion a lot Mm -hmm. when there's these values things. So those six areas, when you think about them in the negative sense, are like the burnout shop. One Mm -hmm. or more of those will increase the risk, you know, of burnout for the employees. The good news is you can pivot and say, so what would be better? Okay, how could we change something? How could we take some of the pebbles? Don't start with a great big (gasps) reinvent medical care for the 21st century. What's the little stuff that's driving you crazy all the time? How do we make those changes? Start with the one where people can clearly identify some ideas about what to do and mm-hmm. begin to make those changes. In the book, for example, we talk about how some changes have come about. And sometimes they're small, they're inexpensive, with no money. They can be done under the radar. You don't need a lot yeah. of approval. So the coping strategies help the individual adjust to the job. Mm -hmm. But this other thing is saying, how does the job adjust to people? And you really need both, not just the one.
0: So let's dig into that a little bit. You might have heard that we at Nike had every Friday in July off, and the last week in August off, and that was for rest and recovery. Now, after our conversation, I feel pretty confident in diagnosing myself with You know, maybe I'm a a little overworked. Maybe I'm a little stressed here and there. I kind of hit fatigue here and there. But I have what you described as that sense of purpose where I wake up excited to do my job. I feel like I'm learning and I'm contributing and that gets me through it. So I know that I'm not burnt out at the moment. So those free Fridays, that week off, it did give me the opportunity personally to recover from some of that heavy lifting that I was doing. Do actions like this or mental health days, vacations, no meeting Fridays, do they actually help employees either avoid
1: or recover from burnout? They might help in the recovery, which is a coping strategy. Okay. They do not prevent burnout. All of the research that's been done, not just on burnout, but on what we call respites, breaks, vacations, times off, fewer hours, there's many variations of those things. And all of that shows that it can be helpful Mm short-term, not long-term. In other words, if you go back to the same old job conditions that were causing burnout, even if you've had a break from it, that's not getting rid of burnout forever. So again, it's still a focus on the people and saying, how can we give you more rest or time away from work or something like that to cope? But it's really not tackling why were you so overloaded, so stressed in the first place. So it's missing that point. There's so many strategies that fit into that ballpark of get away from work. That's the way to cope with work. Don't work. Well, Mm -hmm. if the best solution is to get away from work, it begs the question, what's wrong with work? That the best thing you can do is not do it. Athletes know this. I mean, you get all revved up to run, but they know when you have to then stop, Mm -hmm. rest, recover. Okay, yes. But does it change the sources of the stressors on people? If they're still there, breaks can only do so much. And the other thing just to keep in mind is that sometimes people with their time off are not resting and recovering. I've been guilty of that. <laughs> you know? So it's not just, ah, oh, if maybe you're not mm-hmm. at work, you're just, you know, out there on the couch and you're sleeping extra hours, reading a book, you know, whatever. Yeah.
0: For me, when I heard we had this week off, I was like, where can I go? What can I do? Maybe I'll take my son to visit my parents. And then I was like, I'm just going to stay here we're just going to have a staycation. And I've never done that. And I think maybe that's why I came back feeling a little better. Yeah. But yeah, the tendency, I think, when you're in that go, go, go at work is to go, go, go all the time, even when you're not going with work stuff, at least. Yeah. That's how I kind of
1: (laughs) deal with it. I know. Well, you know, we really need eight hours of sleep, seven to eight hours of good sleep. So what about the rest of the day? Well, You get eight hours at work, you get eight hours of personal time, you get eight hours of sleep. And that was somehow the balance that works for most people most of the time. What has been happening is that those three equal (laughs) segments are getting messed up. People are taking work home, they're working late, they're coming in on overtime, whether they're paid or not. There's a fear, a culture of fear that I can't say no, I have to keep doing this. There are people who, prior to pandemic, had long commutes. Well, that's not work time that you're being paid for, but it's not personal time. It's not sleep time. And you're getting more and more into this area where the work is kind of invading in different ways the rest of life. And I think now, for example, there are a lot of people who realized during the pandemic, not everything was easy about that. But one of the things was they didn't have to commute. And their life turned out to be a little bit more positive. And they're looking for other ways to do the work and do it well and feel good about it, make a contribution, but not have to essentially lose two, four, six hours going back and forth, back and forth.
0: So in order to make an actual big difference in this, we all have to work together and do our part. So let's be real, when it comes to employers, the business owners, what will actually make a difference? What can they do?
1: One thing they can do is what we used to call walk-around leadership, That means you actually talk to people and listen Mm -hmm. to them, ask questions, follow them around, get a better sense of what's happening in different places and what the problems are, so that when it comes up and you say, oh my gosh, I don't have the money to spend on that, you understand why they are saying, we really need this, you know, please, 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 you know, kind of thing. One thing that is happening related to that is that in a lot of companies or organizations, they are doing more and more annual surveys. Everybody has to fill out all kinds of questions and measures. In most cases, they do not give any feedback to the people who filled out the questionnaires and say, what did we learn from this? And then next year rolls around another survey, maybe the same set of questions again, you know, because they want to see is there improvement or change, something like that. And after a while, people just fill it with junk. It doesn't give you a good thing because you haven't held up your side of the bargain, which is to say, talk to me through a survey. And now... Here's what we're going to do to course correct in, in, you know, this particular area. I worry that there's been more focus, certainly during the pandemic, and it may have changed some, so I can't really say for sure. But, you know, how do we know that people are working when they're working from home? So we're going to have Zoom meetings all the time, and I need to see you, you know, this kind of thing, as opposed to sort of saying the important thing is what they actually then Produce, or do they meet some criterion, or have we solved a problem? Does it really matter whether they're doing it nine to five or they're doing it at eleven because then they're a night owl and they're just ready to go?
0: Yeah, there's that level of like we're all adults. Trust us to get the work done that needs to be done, and if it's great and it's on deadline, then does it matter how it's happening?
1: Yeah. So that trust you're talking about in terms of the community, it requires a community response and if managers are coming in and really talking to people not about, are you getting this done, et cetera, et cetera, but what could we do to make sure that you're thriving and able to do well? Mm -hmm. We've all been in this together. We've been through some really rough times. We are concerned about our employees, and we're trying to figure out as we move forward, because we don't know what that future is quite going to be like, how are we going to try and deal with any crises that come down the road? How are we going to Encourage people to come back to the job that they had or to move Mm -hmm. forward. All of this, at some level, is saying that the psychological, social well-being of people, what makes them tick? What Mm -hmm. makes them excited, willing to do things, you know, looking forward to working with other people and stuff like that? Those are the things that are driving a lot of what we see as burnout.
0: You've made it very clear the responsibility should not be on the individual However, not only on the individual, individual, how much of a positive impact can a healthy lifestyle have on avoiding burnout?
1: A healthy lifestyle, in a sense, makes you more equipped to do whatever it is you do in life. And that's not just Mm -hmm. the work, but balancing that with your home life. If you're getting enough rest and sleep, if you're getting healthy food, if you're exercising, if you're, you know, all of that kind of stuff, you are just in better shape when stressors come along, you know, or unexpected things come along. So it's a way of keeping up and keeping pace with whatever the world around you is Mm -hmm. asking of you. But I think there are limits. A human body can only go so far. And you cannot just be up all the time and not get rest and, and stuff like that. So then we have to ask, at some point, are we putting people in situations where the coping is just not enough to fill the gap? One of the things we're seeing in a lot of places is that if you haven't got it done, you take it home. If you haven't got it done, you stay late. If I need you on the weekend, if I need you on your days off, you're gonna be there.
0: Well, in that work from home situation, at least personally, I love getting the commute time back and I love being able to, you know, wake up and get something done if I have extra time in the morning before my son's up. But that can really bleed into, oh my gosh, I'm not just working eight hours. I'm working ten or eleven hours and I'm Always on my computer, my kitchen is also my office. Like, there are challenges there.
1: Yeah. So what we're seeing is what has often been talked about as the tired generation. You know, (laughs) and when you add in people in younger generations who have huge school debt to pay off and are doing two jobs rather than just one. I mean, all of these kinds of things add to you're not getting enough of the recovery that you need, Mm -hmm. which is the sleep. Or you have things on that are still like people who work in their bedroom and have little lights and blinking (laughs) things. it's signaling you not to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So yes, a healthier lifestyle is absolutely a good thing as much as possible. But people, I mean, I'll interview people and talk about things like that, like getting enough sleep and this kind of thing. And they just laugh and say, yeah, tell that to my boss. Because given what I have to do and how I have to do it, there's no way I have enough hours to get sleep.
0: So if somebody were to say, I only have time to do one of these five categories of healthy things, I only have time to make my dinner or to go for a run or to get an extra hour of sleep, as it relates to burnout, what might be the most powerful in the moment? Or does it just depend so much on the situation and the individual? It depends a lot on the situation.
1: I mean, the call for a one-size-fits-all response never works. And I keep telling people, I wish I had a one-size-fits-all, something simple like, Take two aspirin and your headache will be gone. <laughs> you know, that's it. Do this yeah. thing, burnout will no. And that's why organizations that have sort of more what I'll call cafeteria style benefits
0: mm-hmm.
1: have a better time dealing with their employees in terms of fairness. Because if we provide childcare and there are people who don't have children, and they're thinking, okay, no benefit for me. With a cafeteria style, you have a choice of different options. So everybody is getting something that will address Mm -hmm. where they are in life and that kind of thing, rather than feeling like some people are getting more and other people are getting less. Again, it's these matches, you know, not perfect matches, but I mean better matches between people and these surrounding situations that we work in. The idea of kind of redesigning the workplace, reinventing the workplace – has already been out there because of COVID. It's not that there wasn't a case to be made before for doing a better Mm -hmm. job on designing workplaces, but I think that's really brought it into much clearer light. So how do we really think out of the box? I mean, not just little things, but how could we really get together and say, if we could do this kind of task in a better way, what would it look like? And can we try it out on an experimental basis and tweak it until we get it right?
0: So what does that future of work look like (laughs) to abolish burnout for good? If you could just go wild here, snap your Uh, fingers, make it happen. (laughs) What is your dream scenario for all of us?
1: Well, again, it makes it sound like there's a scenario, there's a dream, and I can't snap my fingers and provide that. What I can say is that there are ways in which all of us can have more of an impact on reshaping work to adjust to newer and ever-changing realities. And it's not new that we can do this, but we have to be more consciously aware that we've got to do this now. I can look back when I first started as a new assistant professor at the university. I taught classes. I did research. Do we teach classes that way now? No. We teach them differently. The changes that come and hit us aren't necessarily ones that we control, but we control ways in which we modify those change our behaviors, to adjust, to cope, but also to really rethink the old way is comfortable. This is the way we've always done it, but it's not always the best way. We could do better. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just a fresh thinking about what could we drop off? What could we take off? What could we get rid of? What could we redesign, literally redesign the forms, the rooms, the whatever? People thought really all this open desk space, you know, where people come Mm -hmm. in is, you know, the wave of the future. So yeah, If I we, go
0: back to the office, I'm going to want to take all my new house plants with me. I yeah, need all I know. the house plants around me. So. <laughs> yeah, I know,
1: I know. I've talked with architects for the first time in my life in a very different way about what it means to design a place where people are going to come and do work and mm-hmm. how that's changing. And how do you find out what works for people and what doesn't work for people? We've had things where people have refused to go into new buildings because they think it's so awful and they don't want to work there. Well, okay, but if you think about the psychological, social motivation, you know, what is it we want to do? We want to feel safe, mm-hmm. physically safe, but we want to feel psychologically safe. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we can, you know, relax and get inspired by things. We want to feel we can make changes to make the environment better, bring in the house mm-hmm. plants, you know, do a different way of meeting with people. There's lots and lots of possibilities. So I guess my dream is that people will really take – it's seriously that we can build these better environments. It's like having a beautiful flowering plant or a green one like you can see in the back there. Mm-hmm. But if you take it and you put it in a pot with lousy soil, little sun, no water or anything, I don't care how expensive the plant was, the best of its breed, you know, the best mm-hmm. tulip you could ever find in a Holland or something, it won't bloom. It won't thrive. Because it's in a bad environment. Well, there's an analogy to people thriving in an environment which really supports not just the technical skills, but those social and psychological things that make us human beings. We want to belong with our neighborhood and our families. We want to belong, you know, as an important part of work. We want to have a sense of competence in what we're doing, whether it's with family or friends or workers. It's the same things. It just has to be recognized in terms of how we think about the workplace, how we redesign it so that we're actually giving people more of the necessary resources to really blossom. So
0: what do you do that keeps you mentally healthy and helps you avoid stressors in your life?
1: I make sure I take time off to do different kinds of things. And it's not just away from work, but it's the idea of positively, what do I really enjoy doing and how can I do that? I love going to the theater. I, when I was a kid, I studied dance for years and years and years. I really thought I would go into that kind of a profession. So I love the theater, dance, plays, performing mm-hmm. arts. I love music. During the pandemic, you had to find different ways of doing it. But also hiking, just being out in nature. Did a yeah. lot more of that during the pandemic yeah. because I could get to places where there weren't other people and then you just – Soak it in, Mm -hmm. paying more attention than I ever did before, you know, to the birds that live nearby and this kind of stuff. That's one of the important psychological needs, you know, for autonomy and competence and belonging and stuff. But a whole other one is positive emotions. That Mm -hmm. we have times, even at work as well as at home, that we laugh, that we share good things, that we celebrate. It's just restorative to have that kind of positive emotion. So how do we build that in? You know, like I was saying, some people are saying the best day I have is when nothing bad happens. You're talking about a total absence. You know, there's there's nothing good. So how do you, can you build it into the job? Maybe yes, maybe no. But can you build it outside in the rest of Mm -hmm. your life? Make time for it? You just sort of find what is it that makes you love life and feel good about it and share it with people.
0: Well... As a very perfect place to end this conversation. Okay. And this is a little bit off topic, but I do want to bring it back to the legend that you are. I feel like I should get extra credit toward my degree by having had interviewed <laughs> you. So I'm going to look into that, okay. and I'm like, come <laughs> knocking on your digital door for a signature at some point.
1: Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but what will happen is then people will say, well, write a paper, and when I you know. talk about her research... We'll see if she thinks you did a good job.
0: (laughs) No, Hey, I'm up for that challenge. Um, Dr. Maslach, what an honor. Thank you for helping us contribute to this current conversation with accuracy, with authority. I think that this will really help make a difference for people who are looking to be better employers and people who are looking for ways to understand what they're feeling. So I really
1: appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be asked. So I'm very appreciative of that, too. I was joking slash not
0: joking when I said I might write a paper on Dr. Maslach's work. Like, okay, if I'm really taking her advice, I probably shouldn't take on another extra credit assignment. And then again, I'm pretty sure I'll keep studying her ideas for years to come. In her books, sure, but also in my daily experiences and environments. Now that I've got my mind around those six paths to a healthier workplace, I can't help seeing them everywhere. Just knowing about them makes me that much more likely to hold myself and others accountable every day. And also, I'll probably buy more plants. I believe Dr. Maslach has explicitly given me permission to buy all the plants. This has been an episode that was totally grounded in research, and yet it's felt incredibly actionable to me. I hope that it feels that way to you too, and to your boss. I hope that the next time we think about scheduling a meeting on a Friday, or consider calling someone up to take a shift at the last minute, we pause and ask ourselves, what would Dr. Christina Maslach do? On the next episode, I'll be talking with self-defense teacher Nicole Snell, who's going on the offense to help make sure women and people of color feel safer and more empowered in natural spaces. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.